the strange but true stories featured on this podcast contain details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello, thank you for being here today for our seventh instalment of Weird Fix. I'm so sorry I sound a bit strange, I'm still recovering from this horrendous bout of flu, but onwards we must move, so please do bear with me. Let's jump right on into our first story for today, which was actually brought to my attention by Vicky, who's a wonderful member of our Facebook discussion group. And as soon as I saw the title of the article she shared, I was hooked in and I needed to know more. This is the tale of India's incredibly mysterious Lake of Skeletons. This might be one of the weirdest things I've ever read about. It's one of those stories where the more you think about it, the stranger it becomes. Located in the Indian Himalayas, in a valley on one of India's highest mountains, is a body of water called Rupkund Lake. The photos of it are absolutely beautiful. Well, when the lake is frozen at least, which is for the majority of the year. But when the ice thaws, This picturesque landscape turns from looking like a shot from a nature documentary to a scene from a horror film, because scattered both around and beneath this ice lay between 600 and 800 human skeletons. And no one knows for sure exactly who they were, why they're there, or how long they've been there for. Whilst most of the remains are just bones, due to the very cold weather conditions at the site, some of the bodies have been much more well-preserved. There's apparently even flesh still visibly attached to some of the skeletons. Whilst the very existence of this bizarre site has been considered a total mystery since it was first uncovered, thought to be by a visiting British forest ranger in 1942, although some believe it was originally found earlier than this, that hasn't stopped a number of theories from emerging to try and offer up some kind of explanation for it. Here are some of the most popular. Many people believe that the bones could belong to Indian soldiers who had attempted to invade Tibet back in 1841, but were forced to retreat and couldn't survive in the freezing conditions. I can only assume that in this case, the belief is that the site of the lake was where they were camped. Otherwise, I'm not sure why their bones would be resting in such a relatively compact area. Another major theory dates back much, much further to over 870 years ago. Some think that the remains are of an Indian king and his many associates, who were caught out in a blizzard in the Himalayas and perished in the valley. Alternatively, the idea that the lake is more of an intentional burial site than an accidental one has been widely discussed. Perhaps the skeletons belong to people who died as the result of a disease or natural disaster, a theory which is backed up by a popular folk song sung in the area about a deadly hailstorm that, as the legend has it, had been caused by goddess Nanda Devi. But whilst none of these ideas have necessarily been backed up by fact, there have been a couple of studies done on the remains to try and fill in some of the blanks. The findings have been somewhat confusing though. Initial studies led to a few different beliefs being established. 
Firstly, that all of those whose bones lie in the lake had died at around the same time, as the result of a single devastating event in around the 9th century. Secondly, these early studies suggested that the majority of those who had perished at the lake were between the ages of around 35 to 40, both men and women, many of whom were above average height. There were some bones which were thought to have been from elderly women found too, but no evidence of any children or babies. However, the latest study, which took around five years to complete, pretty much turned all of the previous thinking on its head. These new tests concluded that whilst, yes, there were both male and female remains discovered at the site, they hadn't all died at the same time in one huge catastrophe. Some of the bones are thought to be around 1,200 years old, but some are only a couple of centuries in age. It was found that they belonged to a genetically diverse selection of people. Scientists believe that some of the souls were likely from South Asia, whilst others were probably European, specifically from the Greek island of Crete, which feels so random. Researchers couldn't find any evidence that they had died from disease or in any kind of battle, as they found no weapons or other items which would indicate a mass brawl. The only thing that scientists have really been able to agree on is that it's reasonable to assume that those who died near Rupkunda Lake were possibly there on a pilgrimage, as evidence of these trips taking place through the Indian Himalayas has been recorded throughout the centuries. But what exactly happened to them, why it happened at this spot, and why some people from Europe had chosen to venture to this specific corner of the world is still totally unknown. You'd better believe that I'm setting up a Google alert right this second for updates on this one, because it has left me feeling completely baffled. Next, for some reason, ever since I learned about the concept when I was a teenager, I have been fascinated by moral panics. Whether it's in the context of true crime, things like the so-called satanic panic that surrounded cases like the West Memphis Three, for example, or more social issues like the concerns around violence in video games, I just think the whole notion is so interesting. But the other day, I found out about one of the most bizarre instances of moral panic I'd ever heard of. And the more I read about it, the weirder the story became so I knew I had to share it with you all. And it's all to do with pinball machines. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of a pinball machine, my mind conjures up quite a wholesome scene. Kids from a bygone era gathered together in a noisy arcade, bright lights flashing and sound effects ringing out, sweets being eaten and coke being drunk from glass bottles. What could be so wrong with that, hey? Well, in the eyes of Fiorello LaGuardia, the mayor of New York City from the mid-1930s to the mid-1940s, the pinball machine was much less of a fun pastime and much more of a menace to society. In 1942, Mayor LaGuardia decided that enough was enough and that pinball machines had to go. He outright banned them from operating in the Big Apple, saying that they were a source of corruption, encouraging children to steal coins in order to play and gamble on the machines, and skip school to get their gaming fix. He was so convinced of the 
pinball machines evil that he made a huge PR stunt out of this van. In January of 1942, after a series of raids were conducted at bowling alleys, arcades, sweet shops and bars in the city, he held a press conference with a number of senior police officers, where they took sledgehammers to the seized pinball machines to really get their message across. And it wasn't just New York who had a bee in their bonnet about these seemingly innocent gaming setups. Authorities in Los Angeles, Chicago, Milwaukee and New Orleans all followed suit, banning pinball machines in public places. But was there something deeper behind this sudden outrage? Well, although the original pinball machines didn't have those flippers on them to help control the ball when it falls to the bottom, they were more of a game of chance where the ball was released and would naturally fall into a slot on the board, which would correlate with a certain prize if the player was lucky. They did have a lot of metalwork involved in their design and construction. Now, for context, this clampdown on pinball machines happened to come just weeks after the Pearl Harbor attack, when the topic of resources like copper, aluminium and nickel being used for military purposes above all else was extremely prevalent. LaGuardia decided that there was a link here between the two causes and proclaimed that he believed it, quote, infinitely preferable that the metal in these evil contraptions be manufactured into arms and bullets, which can be used to destroy our foreign enemies. And when the machines were dramatically seized in those raids, it was said that they contained enough metal to build four aerial bombs weighing 2,000 pounds each. Interesting. For the decades that followed, the smear campaign against pinball machines continued. It was often rumoured that the pinball industry had links with organised crime, as many of the machines were manufactured in Chicago, which was then well known for its criminal underworld. At one point in 1960, the Republican Party tried to cause a scandal by releasing a photo of JFK, who was running for president, standing in a group which included some someone involved in the Indiana pinball industry. It's absolutely nuts, I can't believe I'm saying some of these sentences out loud. By the 1970s, most places in the US were starting to come round to the idea that pinball machines probably weren't as bad as once thought, especially after the flippers were introduced at the bottom and it became more of a game of skill than chance, which got rid of some of the gambling stigma. But not New York. Officials there were still convinced that allowing pinball machines back into their city's leisure spots would lead to all kinds of mayhem, but by 1976 they finally gave in, a good few years after most other major US cities. Not before we turn them a spot in the good old Guinness Book of Records though. To this day, New York still holds the record for the longest ban in gaming history, at a whopping 34 years. Who'd have thought that a kid's arcade game could have caused so much drama? Finally for today, it's almost that time of year once more. Valentine's Day is fast approaching and the shops are packed full of heart-shaped chocolate treats and weirdly passive-aggressive cards. You know the ones I mean. You may be an asshole, but you're my asshole. When did those become the standard? That's what I want to know. You can't get away from them. Anyway. 
Did you know that we have this tradition of celebrating love on the 14th of February to thank for one of our most famous English language idioms? As it turns out, the phrase, wear your heart on your sleeve, might have a slightly more literal meaning than most people realise. Although thankfully not totally literal, that would be quite gory. Many believe that the saying dates back to the time of the Roman Empire, where around this time in February, they celebrated the festival of Lupercal. As part of this, young adults who weren't yet married would draw a name from a box and would often enter into a relationship with the person whose name they picked. If they had genuine feelings for this person, they would pin the name to their sleeve to display their affection to the world, hence wear your heart on your sleeve. Others claim the practice which spawned the phrase was started by Emperor Claudius II and actually took place during festival celebrations that happened at the beginning of March. Claudius was not keen on his male subjects marrying. He believed they were better soldiers if they were single, but he did allow little romantic dalliances. To choose their partner, this same pick a name, wear it on your sleeve routine is thought to have been performed. Whichever version of the story is true, I thought this bit of ancient trivia was actually quite sweet. I really hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Weird Fix. A huge thank you for being here. I hope my voice wasn't too distracting. A few super quick shout outs to our sources for today. There was a brilliant BBC article about the Skeleton Lake. That was by Sutik Biswas from February 2021. A History.com piece by Christopher Klein from November 2016, all about the pinball machine ban. Plus the Guinness World Records website page about the record it holds. Finally, there was a Yahoo news piece by Caroline Allen from January 2020, all about that Valentine's idiom, along with a Smithsonian magazine piece on the topic by Emily Spivak from February 2013. Do feel free to check us out on Instagram over at Things Get Weird Podcast. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Things Are About To Get Weird, or you can pop me an email at thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear your thoughts on today's stories, and if you've enjoyed them, then a quick rating or review wherever you listen is something I really do appreciate. I'll chat to you again next Wednesday when I'll have a new full episode for you. So until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. <laughs>